Who'll speak for you if you can't speak for yourself? My father made sure that I knew exactly what he wanted and how he wanted to live his life. On today's program, we explore a new model for advanced care planning designed to make it easier for all of us to identify someone we trust to speak on our behalf in the event we're incapacitated. On any given day, if I ask an adult, if heaven forbid you were in a car accident or had a stroke, who would you trust to speak for you if you were unable to speak for yourself? The vast majority can tell me who that is. Naming a trusted decision maker today on the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. Advanced care planning allows all of us to make important decisions about the kind of health care we want if we ever face a medical crisis. Mary Kingston tells us her father's story. My father had been at the Lyric Opera House doing what he loved to do best, which was listening to the opera. That particular night when he got up to leave, he passed out and collapsed on the stairs. And he was transported to this very prestigious hospital in the middle of downtown Chicago. He had pretty much severed his spinal cord when he took the fall, but he was fully alert and oriented, but on the respirator. One thing I'm grateful for is my father had made sure that I knew exactly what he wanted and how he wanted to live his life. And of course, when I saw him in that bed with all of the IV pumps and the neck brace and all of the equipment around the bed, I wanted to know, were there any other options, any other things that we could look at? And we looked down all of those roads and, you know, I spoke with him and said, this is a stabilization of your neck for a 78-year-old man, but you'll spend the rest of your life on a respirator and in bed. And you won't be able to garden like you love to do or bake bread like you love to do or make jams or go out to dinner. And this is what you and mom and myself and my brother talked about when it comes to a point where there's no more to be done, what do you want me to do? It was the hardest conversation I've ever had in my life. And he said, I don't want any of this. I don't want to be on this. I want the tube to be pulled out. This is not how I want to live. Even after having that conversation with him, I was torturing myself, like, am I doing the right thing by taking him off the respirator and helping ease his way? Is there something I'm not thinking about? Because in the end, I thought I was making the decision. I talked to his primary care doctor. He knew my dad very well. And this primary care doctor said to me, Mary, this isn't your decision. This is your dad's decision. Mary Kingston is the chief executive of Peace Health, Oregon. The fact that Mary's father and his family had had the conversation about how he wanted to be cared for made a difference. But relatively few families have had that conversation. Advanced care planning is still often overlooked or avoided, even though it is a powerful tool for communicating 
an individual's wishes. On today's program, a conversation about some of the roadblocks to advanced care planning and ideas for increasing the number of individuals and families who can take advantage of the powerful way it empowers patients to make their will known when that information can be crucial. My colleague, Ira Bayak, is the Chief Medical Officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Ido Bannock leads the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. And Nathan Kotkamp, healthcare attorney, founded the National Healthcare Decisions Day many years ago. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. The three of us have, uh, at, uh, in recent months, been in, in some conversation about how frustrating it is that after, for me, since the uh, 1980s, uh, pushing this idea, we have made um, only slight progress. Despite all of the efforts, people aren't uh, getting advanced directives on file, what we used to call a, a living will or a durable power of attorney for health care. Um, and I'll turn to you, Nathan. Why aren't we succeeding? Part of it, I think, is um, the way that we do medicine in, in the United States is we're sort of always pushing towards um, the next possibility. It's sort of Hail Mary after Hail Mary after Hail Mary. And so we get into this mindset where we're always thinking the cure is right around the corner. And as a result, we end up doing ourselves a disservice because uh, we don't plan for uh, what we would do if, if the disease, the cancer, whatever it is, uh, ultimately um, is too strong or powerful. And so I think we just have a bad vocabulary for it. I don't think we've got good mechanisms um, for discussing these things and um, non-clinical circumstances. And so that's a lot of what got us to where we are today. I would just add that we often think about uh, the issue of an advanced directive as either a legal document. I mean, Nathan and I are both lawyers. I mean, that's our, that's our instinct uh, or medical documents. Um, and I think the reality is that it, 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 if it's done right, it's actually neither one of those things. It's, it's an articulation of someone's wishes that should come way before we're thinking about legal documents that deal with end of life and way before we're actually thinking about receiving medical care. The reason we're in this situation is because we've we've either referred to this as a medical or a legal issue. And I think in reality, it's it's uh, it's that. But I think it's more um, one of the things that's been laid bare by COVID-19 is the idea that uh, that all of the uh, that the way in which the um, your, your life unfolds is predictable. Um, it's not. And we've seen a lot of, uh, of people who were perfectly healthy uh, before uh, getting COVID-19 and succumbing to it. I think one of the things that we've done a disservice uh, is to make the document more medical than it is human. Uh, and by that, I mean, I think when people are creating a living will in particular, they think that they're supposed to give instructions about their health care. And I'll tell you that most people don't have a good crystal ball. They couldn't tell us what kind of care they're going to need at the end of their life anyway. So having a bunch of medical instructions is way less important to me as one of the folks that has to interpret these than getting some guideposts about what does a good death look like? What does health care mean? What does it mean to be able to have physical contact and to, to, to uh, be able to taste things and swallow on my own? Those are maybe healthcare, but there's so much 
broader and they're so much deeper. And so um, that's, I think, the reason why it's, yes, it's legal and yes, it's medical, but it, it shouldn't be. It should be something much more um, human. Let me give it a name. I, I think these are personal documents. These name what you value, who you, what your choices are as a person. Uh, and so I, I totally agree with your uh, analysis. We tend to dichotomize things. That's how we deal with, with social problems in America. If you want something funded, you either have to call it a medical problem or a criminal justice problem. Those are the, those are the two mechanisms we basically have. Uh, and, and in this case, um, uh, you know, they're both partly right, but they don't encompass the, the essence uh, of the thing itself. Illness isn't, is only partly medical. Illness is intensely personal, right? And and we all uh, know that. You know, in in I guess it was the late 1990s. Uh, uh, Joe Finns, uh, the great uh, medical ethicist at Cornell, uh, wrote an article in which he pointed out that advanced directives are contractual, uh, and contracts by design are intended to to protect a person from threat, some some risk, and yet. People, when as patients, when you ask people, how do you want your decisions made about your care, they want them made out of trust, out of, in a covenantal framework, not a, in a contractual framework. And so I think part of where we've all come, frankly, is that we realize that uh, we need to sort of uh, start shifting both how we design these conversations and, and how we record the outcomes of those conversations Maybe we're actually inadvertently in trying to, you know, foster uh, self-determination and autonomy. We, we've actually uh, impeded the evolution of the therapeutic model. Well, I think you're absolutely right. So I think that the question for us now that we've all sort of denounced the, the over-medicalized, over-legal uh, version of this is if, if someone were to give us a sort of a magic wand and say, all right, create this new, this new world, what would we do? Um, because I think we have a chance, the three of us, plus all the listeners, to, to actually push for something that works better. Yeah, you know, there are several ways of moving forward, frankly. Uh, let me start by, by saying that within the Providence Health System, we, several years ago now, realized that we weren't getting anywhere. We were putting enormous time and energy and, and our, you know, rates of, uh, of adults with advanced directives on file are like, you know, under a third. Uh, and it's, it, it is very frustrating. Uh, um, we recognize that their barriers were, uh, frankly, uh, two things. One, um, this sort of menu of specific treatments that are part of the many of the uh, legal documents that you, you, you are asked to pick from, a, from this menu of, of uh, CPR and mechanical ventilation and all that. And people don't know what to do with that. And two, we require people to have witnesses or notaries. That's what the statute says makes it a legal document. And you can't even ask for witnesses from our, even our volunteers, the staff can't do it. And uh, you have to get people from a waiting room or, or the next room in a hospital, uh, family members will come over or a notary, which are often few and far between when, when you need them and may be expensive for people, by the way. Um, but the other thing, what we recognize that the strength is on any given day, if I ask an adult, if heaven forbid you were in a car accident or had a stroke, who would you trust to speak for you if you were unable to speak for yourself? The vast majority can tell me who that is. And that we could record at least for their verbal expression. 
most of those people can also tell me in general what they would want that person they just named to know about their uh, treatments if they were seriously ill and, and their life was threatened. Those two things we could capture, but we, we didn't have a format for capturing them. So we created this thing called the Trusted Decision Maker uh, documentation in our electronic health record. And we went all the way through governance to have that policy approved that if a, a patient told their doctor or their nurse practitioner who they would trust to speak for them and in general what they would want, that could be recorded in the electronic health record. And if there was no advanced directive on file, it could be used to guide choices of who to speak to and, and treatment options. Ito, you, I think, came up with the other option, another option of, of having people simply record, do a video selfie about who they would trust to speak for them and what they would, would want, which frankly uh, has like real face validity of being a clear document of people's uh, wishes. Well, I stole that from Nathan Kotkamp, uh, but you know, I think that, um, that idea. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of folks um, are on their uh, iPhones all the time. And yet there's no easy mechanism. There are, but they're not widely used for us to um, indicate in a very simple way. I'm Ido Bannock. Today is August 17th. God forbid if anything should happen to me, this is what I want. There's no easy way to do that, to document it. And, uh, and further to the point, there's no easy way to make that a routine part of what, what you do. If there were, if Amazon suddenly said, in order to be an Amazon Prime member, you have to tell us what your wishes are. Or if uh, when you get your driver's license or when you register for selective service or something, if there were a condition of something else that made this a routine thing, not something that happens when you're dealing with, do I need a ventilator or not? And you're in the hospital. That's too late. If it's something that happens way earlier, um, then we're going to see compliance with that go way up. And again, from the human perspective. We're not talking about medical anything. We're just shopping for food here, or we're just getting a car here, or whatever it is. I think that will help get more people to execute advanced directives. I wanna go further on this. I, I say within, within healthcare, we're trying to say, it's like the allergy list. And we're saying that to doctors uh, uh, and, and, and practice managers, but we're also saying it to patients and families. This isn't this isn't about whether we think you're going to survive or we're worried about your health. This is about completing your healthcare record. I can't go further, you know, in treating you without knowing whether or not you're allergic to some medication I might give you. I don't think you're going to have a, a, a you know, get anaphylactic shock, but a, but it would be irresponsible not to have asked. And and so we're trying to normalize it in that way. But you know, you're talking about even beyond that. Just um, and they're not mutually exclusive, by the way, uh, of having. Your driver's license, for instance, require that or, you know, I think, Nathan, we've talked about you're welcome to Medicare visit. I mean, to, in order to sign up for Medicare, that's a legitimate thing for Medicare to require. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the um, I, I really like the driver's license option. I think it's elegant. It is something that everybody knows they're going to be asked about organ donation anyway. And these things sort of go hand in hand. Um, but think about things like in, in the United States, we have uh health insurance, why aren't we asking and reminding people as they go through open enrollment every year? Hey, you know, this is a good annual time to re revisit your designation of your uh, decision maker and uh, make sure to have a conversation with that person. Um, I mean, you could make it a giant push to be to be done on your on your birthday, Thanksgiving, 
the holidays. And so, you know, there's uh, there's other places that we could put the emphasis on this um, that will help remind people right. that it's not a medical thing. It's not a legal thing. It's a gift thing. It's a human thing. It's an inter in interaction uh, relationship thing. And that could be, you know, for all of the hurt and the pain that we've seen out of COVID-19, a silver lining could be that we finally begin to have these discussions in a more proactive way and document them. A day or two before my mom called me, apropos of nothing, um, and she said, you know, these, uh, these ventilators, they don't seem like they're working. And, you know, prior to COVID-19, I would have said, I want a ventilator. In fact, she had an advanced directive and she wished for a ventilator. Uh, but in the context of, I, I have COPD now, I didn't then, and I'm not so sure I'd survive on a ventilator in COVID-19. I think that I should update my advanced directive. And I said, I, I, I agree and, and I'm, I'm her proxy. And she was telling me this and it, it, it went exactly as it should, which is not always the case, you know, with family members. What, what that shows is that even if you think you have it all figured out, even if you've done everything right, Circumstances can change. Your circumstances can change or a disease can change. And suddenly what you thought you wanted is no longer what you want. So not only do we have to have a way of documenting this, we have to have a way of come, continually coming back to preferences and wishes and making sure that people are updated to make sure that um, that the gift that's been given is, is updated so that I'm let off the hook. I now know what my mom wants if it ever comes to it and uh that's the point i was trying to make there yeah absolutely and i think it, it also highlights the importance of having these conversations having the documents having this entire process be much more values based than instruction based and the reason i say that i, I know plenty of people who have an advanced directive they've got that living will and it has phrases uh, that would be, I always want this or I never want that. And so we, we've got people that have an advanced directive right now that ha says, I never want to be on a ventilator. And the reason they say that is because they saw someone in their family or their, their loved one go through terminal cancer. And that's the vision that they have of the ventilator, right. as opposed to 48, 72 hours to get through the, the critical stage of COVID. They probably would want a ventilator in that circumstance. Not everybody would, but if you were to describe to your decision maker what your perception of importance in life is, what does it mean to re recover, what is it, sorts of things, that's actually more valuable in that kind of circumstance than having a document that says never ventilator, because then you say, wait a second, does this person really want to die? We think there's a chance that they're going to live. So um, I think all the more reason to, to try and make it less specifically prescriptive and much more uh, broadly descriptive um, of what your wishes are. We tried to build in just those two things, making this more covenantal than contractual, and then giving a, a sense of your, your values and priorities to whoever was going to be reading this years hence, hopefully, you know, well, and we'll have to, you're, the person you named or your future physicians, give them a sense of what you think you would want in, in those circumstances, rather than, than a specifying uh, the, the, uh, the menu of the a la carte options, which as, as a physician feels absurd. So often in the past, when I've given, as, when I was a primary care doc, I would give uh, people a, an advanced directive to take home and they would never come back. 
And it's partly because when you get to that stage of, well, do you think you'd want this treatment or that treatment? People say, look at you and say, I, I don't know. I got to talk to my family about it. Somehow we need to change this up. There's also a sense that when you get that laundry list of the living will, that there's there's some existential dread that it that it calls up in anyone who's reading that. Yeah. It's like it's it's a scary thing to imagine yourself in each of those situations. And it's a scary document to have to go through and try to imagine yourself, what would I want in that situation? Whereas it's a much more humane approach to say, you know what? My son, I trust to make this decision for me. Yeah, I, and that's where I sort of come down as an individual. I mean, all of this is such a, um, you know, very specific to, to who you are, what your values are. But for me, uh, I don't want to start dictating to anyone uh, a, a number of different scenarios that really, even though I think I understand, um, may change. So I would rather, and this is what I've done, just name my brother to make a decision and say, look, I trust you to make whatever decision. I won't even know probably what decision it is. Uh, go for it. And I'm letting you off the hook. I'm letting you know, I trust you fully. We've talked through the years, you know, generally what my wishes are. Um, if I try to be specific about what my wishes are, it's going to get it wrong for the reasons that uh, Nathan articulated. Um, I may say I don't want a ventilator. And in fact, I do. I may say I do want a ventilator. And in fact, I don't. Uh, I think it's better to just um, uh, name somebody, which is why what I advocate for is at least have a healthcare proxy. Absolutely. I, I, let me just defend for a moment those who, who want to give some direction to that person. Uh, and, uh, I think for families sometimes having some sense of whether people would want everything possible to keep them alive, even if they were unable to recognize others or interact or, you know, uh, or they would not want anything and would really just be wanting to uh, uh, gently leave this life, um, take some of the burden off of the person you've named shoulders. And if you can't do it and you really trust them entirely, that's legitimate as well. Just saying, just saying that as you have. But the, the burden that people feel is really uh, great. And if, and if you can tell, give them a sense that they're making this decision on your behalf, it may, it may lighten that burden uh, just a bit. I think as, as the younger brother, I want him to have that burden. It's the last laugh that I get as, as the younger brother. No, but seriously, I think that your point is a good one. You know, these are often difficult family dynamics. And uh, you empower one person and, and the other three sisters are going to be mad at that one person for the rest of their life uh, if they don't agree with the decision. So I think you make a great point. I, I've actually written into my document, um, uh, if you're needing to read this, it's likely... Uh, this is a very stressful time for all of you. I want you to know that uh, what's most important to me is uh, that I trust the decisions that you will make and that you know that uh, I want you to support one another and be loving and patient with one another and, and yourselves during this difficult time. That's Dr. Ira Bayak, founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. We're also joined by Nathan Kotkamp, founder of the National Healthcare Decision Day, and Ido Bannock, President and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. When we come back, I'll have details for you to get more information about the Providence Trusted Decision Maker tool, and our conversation will continue in just a minute. Stay with us. 
This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. If you'd like to take a look at the trusted decision maker form that we've been talking about, visit us online at instituteforhumancaring.org and click on the Advanced Care Planning tab in the blue menu bar. Again, that's instituteforhumancaring.org. Back to the conversation with Ira Bayak, Ido Bannock, and Nathan Kotkamp. Nathan stresses how crucial communication is when completing advanced directives. One of the things I think is absolutely critical, and it, it, it's a step that does get forgotten sometimes, is you got to let the person know that you're actually naming them as the decision maker. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the time, the person will rise to that uh, th- that challenge, if you will. They, they'll be happy to do it. It's not an easy task. but. You, you will come across a certain percentage of people who say, I just can't do it. Um, one, maybe they disagree with the, the choices that you make in life and uh, it'll be challenging for them. Or maybe they're just highly emotional folks and you know, they'll be the person by your bedside every single day that you're in the hospital. But they're not going to be rational decision makers. So just make sure um, that you are making that request and so that it's not a surprise to someone Gentlemen, before we uh, uh, conclude, I have to ask you both, uh, since I have now two nationally prominent attorneys with me, um, what are we going to do about the statutes that uh, are standing in the way of real reform in, in, in many regards? Well, I've got one answer. It's not an easy answer for my, my colleagues, and it wouldn't be easy for me to give the advice uh, yet. But I think I can sum it up by saying we need lawyers around the country to be brave. When you look at most of the statutes uh, about, first of all, creating an advanced directive, the statutes tell you what you can, what you do, the, the steps you have to take to create a valid advanced directive. They don't tell you that you can't take something short of that. They will provide you immunity if you follow all those steps. And so the way that that gets translated into um, defensive medicine is we're not going to take it if it doesn't meet those provisions. But we have to bear in mind that there's also community standards of care out there. And so if you take a particular community or an entire state or ideally the entire country and all the all the hospitals say, well, if we have it uh recorded in our medical record it was it was declared before a nurse two nurses a nurse and a physician whatever the, the thresholds are within a particular institution um, and we consider that to be valid there is no question in our mind that this is a valid expression of a person's wishes and we just 
go for it. We will have actually created the standard of care. We'll sort of put it outside of uh, the particulars of, of statutes in, in a state. So that's one way to do it um, that's extra legal, if you will. It's, it just doesn't require all the mechanisms. Um, similarly, if we get uh, insurance companies to do it, uh, if, if we get insurance companies to say, we are going to uh, not pay you or we pay you some lesser amount if you haven't obtained a designated uh, decision maker. Medicare could do that. Private insurers could do that. So there's other ways of getting around those. And I think if we were to do that, then the state statutes will probably get uh, tweaked accordingly so it doesn't seem so um, inconsistent. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that I'll key off of that last point that uh, that Nathan made. I, I'm very much a federalist on this issue. Yes, we defer to states. States get to determine uh, uh, these rules. But there's nothing that would prevent CMS from, through Medicaid um, and Medicare, uh, requiring as a condition of payment that individuals have uh, and enter into an advanced directive for Medicare Advantage, managed care plans, uh, for Medicaid managed care plans, and I would argue for commercial um, Obamacare plans as well. Now, the mechanism for doing that is complicated, and a bunch of lawyers will yell and scream about the fact that it can't be done. Uh, but I think it can be done uh, at least to create that standard. If a state wants to become more strict and require bells and whistles, it can do that. Uh, but right now, we don't have that, that federal default uh, in in terms of the uh, the uh, the insurance companies uh, being directed to do something, and I think we could we could have that. One other state based uh, uh, strategy might be to insert a single line into the state uh, statutes that acknowledge in the beginning of the hierarchy provisions that a uh, verbally expressed wish documented within the electronic health record. Uh, by a patient who has capacity to make decisions about their future preferences will be acknowledged as uh, evidence of their of their wishes. We, and I think we need something else. Um, we need the threat of the conversation of death panels or fights with uh, the church to go away. I mean, we, we really need to be have an upfront, honest discussion that says, look, what we're talking about here are personal wishes of individuals to receive the care that they want at the end of life. And sometimes if you're talking about dementia, you know, obviously the, the, the provision of care itself is something that has to be consented to. And so we do need a lot of the political rhetoric and the religious rhetoric to allow um, uh, a more streamlined uh, process to, to work its way through. And I think that that's gonna take leadership and I think that that's gonna take courage as well, but that's what I hope we can, uh, we can get to. Is anybody pushing back on this idea? I don't. I don't hear much pushback, frankly. Uh, I hear a lot of people, in a popcorn fashion, coming to the realization that the way we've been doing things over, you know, the last forty or so years ha isn't working. Uh, that we really need to um, uh, start to innovate and and look at other ways of capturing people's legitimate expressed wishes. What I've heard, and I think I think it's not helpful, is. Um, you know, none of this matters. You know, we've been we've been spending 30, 40 years talking about advanced directives, talking about people's wishes, um, and it really hasn't worked. So let's give up. Uh, I think I take the, the 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 exact opposite message from that, which is no, we've been doing some things the wrong way, and um, let's work on doing them the right way 
and making sure that people are getting the kind of care they want, we certainly shouldn't kind of give up and say it doesn't matter. It matters uh, profoundly. Well, I think we also have to recognize that there are going to be folks that are resistant uh, or at least concerned. Um, there are there are, uh, racial and other minority issues where there's concern that if you name someone, you are effectively giving up your right to make choices about yourself, even though it doesn't work that way. This is this is the default. This is if you cannot make decisions for yourself. Um, disability communities, advocacy communities for uh, whether it's dementia or Alzheimer's, we oftentimes see when we're working on these projects concerns that by naming someone as opposed to leaving it vague, it gives an invitation for the medical providers and others to jump to that individual before they should and and um, that there's some period of time where the individual ought to remain their own decision maker. So we have to be careful about that. Um, I do think those are some of the places where we can see some pushback. But if the way that we approach this is as a mechanism of honoring the person's wishes, not as a mechanism of taking away their ability to decide for themselves, it's just it's a continuation. It's you. We would love to get your your instructions right here and now, but you don't have that capacity. So who's going to pick up the mantle and run with it for you? Yeah, and where where there's also radical agreement is that those ultimately those decisions, if they cannot be made by the person himself or herself, should be made by the person who is named by that individual. That somebody that person trusts. I, I haven't heard any criticism of that, who else would have more standing than, than the, you know, the person who is trusted? So I guess my question would be, are there next steps? You know, I, I would like to see uh, less laissez-faire, um, uh, a little more muscularity on the federal level uh, in terms of what insurance companies are required to do. Um, and I think that that's, that's a very solid, very specific thing. The welcome to Medicare physical as a baseline of what individuals' wishes are, um, that should be non-controversial as well. So my mind goes to what policy can we institute at the federal level that would begin to sort of chip away at this. And for me, it's a uh, first and foremost, try and get it out of the medical system, try and get it away from old age. Um, so whether it's, uh, and these are not ors, this is probably and 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 and, um, the driver's license, uh, the annual signing up for your health insurance, those types of things where uh, National Healthcare Decisions Day, I can't forget that one, right? So these mechanisms that on, on some periodic basis have nothing to do with healthcare specifically, we're being reminded. Um, and then within the healthcare context, it should be in every patient, every time, every interaction. I'll just conclude as a doctor and say, I, I agree with all that. And as a both and, um, I'd like to see uh, it become a, an expectation of normal that every adult patient has a, uh, their a trusted decision maker in some way acknowledged within the electronic health record that that is front and foremost part of the personal information that is part of the opening page of every every patient's electronic health record so that you know that uh, information and that it be refreshed, if not at every encounter, then at, at periodic times uh, of uh, maybe the annual visit or whenever, however often one sees a, your uh, uh, primary care doctor, but at times of new diagnoses, uh, deaths in the family, significant change in your you know, uh, marital status or or any sort of life 
significant life change, it's simply routinely refreshed and, and revised as necessary. Um, and, and then I do, I do think we need to create some sort of a, a national um, uh, template, a uniform statute that the states can use to just make these more um, personal and non-medical uh, approaches uh, legal and not actually inadvertently put barriers in people's places. Gentlemen, thank you for a really fascinating conversation. Really great. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's great to work with you to, to change the world. You too. Thanks for having me. Dr. Ira Bayak is the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Nathan Kotkamp is a healthcare attorney and founder of the National Healthcare Decision Day. And Ido Bannock leads the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. For more information on the Providence Trusted Decision Maker tool, visit instituteforhumancaring.org and click on the Advanced Care Planning tab. Hear Me Now stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Hear Me Now is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Write to us at humancaring@providence.org. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, inviting you to join us for the next Hear Me Now podcast and to subscribe wherever you get audio on demand. Thanks for listening. Be well.